Chicago's epidemic of gun violence has grabbed the attention of the country. Closer to home, in neighborhoods where illegal guns are commonplace, it has authorities on the hunt for dealers in unlawful weapons. Reporter Mick Dumkey wanted to learn more about how that hunt works. He dug into the case of one Chicagoan busted for moving some of those illegal guns. This story is a collaboration with ProPublica Illinois and the Chicago Sun-Times as part of the WBEZ series Every Other Hour. A caution, this story includes some rough language. That back and forth, that's a Chicago guy named John Thomas getting grilled by federal agents. You think we don't know everything. I just told you I'm the one that has been texting you. It's August, three years ago. The agents have been watching Thomas for months now, watching and recording him while he brokered sales of more than 70 illegal guns. Thomas is about to be listed first among 14 defendants. They were caught in a sting of illegal gun selling in Chicago. He was charged with being a broker in 23 gun deals, all sorts of guns, from pistols to assault weapons, 77 in total. For his crimes, he could get a maximum sentence of 25 years. Thomas connected many of the other defendants with a buyer. The buyer, it turned out, was working as a confidential informant. I interviewed John Thomas several times over the last year, and I can tell you a few things up front. Thomas is 33. He has a warm smile and a chipped front tooth. He has tattoos with the names of his mother and daughter. He's funny and friendly. He had plenty of arrests before this one, for drug sales and possession, trespassing, and for getting caught with a gun. He says that gun was planted. In fact, Thomas says he always tried to stay away from guns. So how did he end up moving guns around Chicago? The story starts in a small patch of Chicago's South Shore neighborhood. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, the east side, which his name is Terratown. Surviving over in the area I grew up, you had to be really like a hardball or stay-to-yourself type person because if you didn't, you would fall in the streets or you would end up six feet deep. Terror Town. It is tree-lined streets and middle-class homes, but the nickname comes from its history of violence. John was about six when he and five of his siblings went to live there with their aunt and uncle, Francie and the Reverend James Irons. John says his father wasn't in the picture, and John's mother struggled with drugs. His aunt and uncle were religious and loving and strict. They always wanted me to just to do right, you know, just go to church, go to school. You can do what you want to do. You just can't go hang out with Jim, Tom, and Bob doing the bad stuff. John remembers the siblings walking in packs for safety. They were told to go straight to school and come straight home after. He made friends easily, and his closest was Romel Mims, a kid from the neighborhood. He was my bodyguard and my best friend, because anybody picked with me, Romel always had my back. The boys started looking for ways to make money. John's hustler side started to come out. It was all these right down 79th and um, Kofax. We all used to be up there all the time. I think I was like 10 or 11. It was young, I was young. The way we hustle, we always help with the carts, you know what I mean? Hey, ma'am, can we help you? Hey, here, we help you to the cart. Any little dollars or stuff we get, you know, a dollar was worth a lot. One day we up there, and we helping people or whatever. That's how I got my nickname, Batman. <laughs> i never forget that. Romeo, he was like, man, you black as hell. 
I'm like, man, whatever. He like, for real, you like a Batman suit. Bitch, your name, excuse my language, but he said, your name, Batman. And ever since then, it stuck to me. It stuck. From the parking lot to the playground to the street, Batman became John's street persona. And he wasn't a church boy anymore. John was only 12, but tough. One day I just chose, I'm not going to listen to you. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave home. Over the next few years, John moved around. He sold drugs, stayed with friends, sometimes relatives, crashed in abandoned buildings. Staying on the streets, had to sleep in cars and stuff, just to survive. By his mid-teens, John had lost people he'd known and cared about. His cousin Jeffrey, whom he considered a brother, killed by police in Cincinnati, Ohio. In Terror Town, John saw a guy gunned down right in front of him, over nothing, he says. And I just seen fire, the light, bye, 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 he just shot him down. John, tell me, tell me all the people you were close with who have been murdered. Man, you go back from Darius, Darius Williams, and as Darius trying to get away, the guy shot him down. Moan, that's Dwayne Cobb, black, Anton Commons, he got killed, you know, he was at a party. White boy, he had a gun, they get into it with some other people. We got Rock, man, it's a list, I can name my list, just for murder alone. All these innocent people, like people that didn't even get a chance to live life or even think about life. And there's another name on that list of Johns. Romel Mims, his best friend, his childhood bodyguard. All of them dead. Like, there's only two of us left, probably three of us left, from sandboxes. By the mid-2000s, John was in his early 20s. A corner store opened down the block. He tried to lay a hustle on the owner. John says his name was Ali. So I tell him, like, look, this my block. You feel me? Y'all open store over here. I got to have something for free. I just told him straight out. They're like, what's your name? I say, I'm Batman. He what? I say, Batman. Ali wasn't having it. Not from John. Not from Batman. John started selling weed out in front of the store. Each time he did, Ali or Ali's son, Muhammad, called the cops. One day, they made a deal. He like, how about I give you a job? I said, you give me a job? Okay, how much you going to pay me? He's like, um, I'll pay you good masadi. You know, that means money. He was giving me like $65 a day. So I'm young. You know, $65 a day, that's a lot of money. So John took the job and changed up his hustle. He sold blunts, pot stuffed inside hollowed out cigars. He sold loose cigarettes too. John worked for Ali and Mo for the better part of a decade. Then there was a whole new twist in his life. I messed with this girl. She says she's pregnant. I say, I don't know why you're telling me, just like any other guy. Why you telling me? That's not mine. Time went past, I get the DNA test. I'm the father. In late 2011, Jataviana is born. John is 27. It was the most best part of my life, because like I said, once I found out it was mine, I kept it to me, kept it clinging to me, kept it clinging to me. John's side hustles at the store start catching the attention of the cops. Ali moves John to another store to take the heat off, but John starts hustling again, and once again, the cops are on him. Eventually, Ali lets John go. So John is out of work, just as he becomes the main caretaker for his daughter. I go back to me and my father, and I think to myself, okay, what if DCFS take my daughter away from me? I mean, 
I stepped in. I got to. Got to. Came, let her be in a system like we was. John struggles to find legitimate work. And with a criminal record, his options are limited. He needs something, anything legal, so that he can afford food, baby formula, and rent. With humility, John turns back to the people who had employed him for most of his adult life. I'm calling him, I'm begging him, like, Mo, please, I need a job, I need a job. He's like, man, Batman, I have nothing for you, bro. One day I call Mo again, I say, man, bro, you said you're my brother, look out for me, man. Mo tells John to meet at a place in Chicago's Beverly neighborhood, several miles from where John's living. So I go there, he come out the back, he, what's up, bro? I'm like, you at a tobacco shop? He like, yeah, this is the job. I said, cool, man, cool. He, I'm like, how much you going to pay me? He said, that's the thing, Batman. I could pay you, but it's only $25 a day. I said, $25 a day? I said, I can't survive off that. I got a whole child and rent more. He said, man, that's all I can do. I said, I'll take it. What else could I do? I'll take it. At work one day, this guy, he coming there with a ponytail, I'll never forget. He's speaking Arabic, so I'm listening to him. His name Yusuf. He talking about some girls and hot weed and stuff, but he don't understand I know what he's talking about. So he like, what's his name? He like, oh, that's Batman. He, oh, what's up, Batman? I said, what's up, Yusuf? So we cool. By late 2013, early 2014, John and Yusuf are hanging out, smoking weed and joking around together. Yusuf gets to know more about John, how little he makes, that he has friends back in Terror Town, that John has a daughter. Weeks and weeks go down. He come to me, hey, Batman, hey, bro, you want to make some Masadi, bro, some real some Masadi. I'm like, what you mean? He like, man, bro, f- this $25, bro. He like, I got somebody right now, bro, you can make some real money off of. I say, wow, what you got to do? Bro, you got some guns? I say, boy, where we from? We don't sell guns. But Yusef keeps coming around, pestering John about guns. John keeps telling him no. One day he coming up with a whole lot of money. I said, damn, bro, where you get that from? He like, bro, I told you, bro, Pops hooking me up, bro. I said, who the f*** is Pops? He said, you straight, you need something? I'm like, hell yeah, I need something. You know, he peeled me off a $100 bill, whatever. He bought everybody KFC. I'm like, damn, I needed this. I'm leaving with $125. Yusuf tells John that a businessman named Pops is working with him to buy guns. He tells John that he can get good money now if he helps them, and that Pops might be able to hook him up with something legit later. By late January 2014, John's financial outlook is still bleak. And the money they're offering him to set up gun buys, $100 for handguns, $150 for long guns, is too enticing, too easy. John bends. I'm thinking, I'm like, man, okay, can I call? They got a gun I can get some money from. He makes a call. At the time, I was thinking, like, how much trouble can I get just for a phone call, just hooking somebody up? So I call my cousin. His name's Steve. First thing when I asked him for a gun, first he, man, who you into it with? You all right? I said, nah, I'm cool. I'm like, man, they paying good money for a gun, man. He, you sure you know him? I'm like, yeah, he cool. He be up here with us. He said, all right. So he come up there. He had some guns. They went in the back. They handled their business. Yusuf came out. He gave me some money. I'm like, dang, I just made 200 quick bucks. Not doing nothing? Cool. All right. And just like that, John brokers his first gun deal. There would be nearly two dozen more. What John doesn't know is that Yusef turns around and sells these guns for a profit. And what neither of them knows is that the people buying them are working for the government. The ATF nabs Yusef. And rather than risk going to prison, 
he agrees to work undercover as a confidential informant. John is now screwed, and so is everyone he's setting gun deals with. The ATF wouldn't talk with us for this story. But John says, and court records confirm, that he and Yusef are in regular contact in the months that follow, and many of their meetings and phone calls are secretly recorded. John likes the money, a lot, but he still wants legit work from Pops. He confronts Yusef about it. So I'm like, man, what's up, man? I need a job, job, you feel me? He said, Pops gonna hook you up. Yusuf, we kick it or whatever. He even called, like, hey, your daughter okay? I'm like, yeah, you know. So I'm thinking, like, okay, he cool. I'll look out for him. You feel me? I have talked to Yusuf about my mom and stuff. You know, I'm telling him my real story about how I grew up. But the whole time he was manipulating me, playing on my heart, my mind, and everything. In April of 2014, John helps arrange four deals involving a total of a dozen guns. In May, it's seven transactions for 11 more. At some point, John says his conscience started to get to him. I remember one day I was in the car. I said, so what are you doing with all these guns, for real? I'm like, if you get them off the street, I will help you, you feel me? I told him, like, I don't mind help you. I'm like, because I'm against guns. You know, I got a door, I'm explaining it to him. He like, man, trust me, Batman, we get them off the street, too. I said, all right, cool. You know, as long as the more off the street, the better. But that, did, you, did you believe that? I mean, what did they mean by taking it off the street? He, he told me that they was melting them down at a factory. Did that seem believable to you? I mean, you're a pretty smart guy. You've seen... Yeah, honestly, because the money that the pops was having, that was really tricked me. Yeah, what kind of car you in? It's mid-May and still pretty cool out. Mid 40s. You say you don't want my people what? John is out with Yusef. They're heading just outside the city to meet up with a guy for the first time. He's known as BD. His real name is Trayson Watson. Yusef is wearing a wire. We ain't worried about that. Joey. BD comes across as aggressive and intense. He's pushing a semi automatic rifle that looks like an AK 47 and a handgun reconfigured to fire like a machine gun. That bitch A1, bro. Hold this bitch like New Jack City on stone. <laughs> Not everyone Yusuf buys from thinks the guns are being melted down. He tells some people he's sending the guns overseas. That's what he tells BD. I told you my business is overseas. I don't f*** around in here. I don't give a f*** if got 10 murders on it. I don't give a f- Count your love, bro. By June, John has brokered the sale of more than two dozen guns. And then... He calls Larry. I met Larry at McIntosh, which is 10, through a person I used to sell drugs for. 10 has access to a lot of weapons. He boasts about his sources in Indiana. Over the next three months, John brokers deals between 10 and Yusef involving more than 40 guns, from little pistols to semi-automatic rifles. All have been transferred illegally. John, 10, Pops, and Yusef arranged their biggest deal yet. It's set for Tuesday, August 26, 2014. I knew it should have been scary, though. You know, because I'm looking like, oh, my f-ing God, they buy 17 guns at a time. The night before the big gun deal, John texts Yusef. He tells him 10 doesn't have as many guns as he promised. It's down to 14, but the deal's still on. John stands to make around 1400 bucks. Then, early Tuesday morning... John gets a phone call. Yusuf called me that morning and like, let's go to breakfast. I'm like, nah, we don't never do breakfast. It's funny. 
He was like, plans has changed. We got to meet Pops or whatever. We got to sit down. So I get dressed. You know what I mean? I never forget. I get real fly. That's what they call them, jiggy. I get jiggy and stuff. I called my people. He didn't know what was going on. Because I never drive my car to do nothing. He came and picked me up. He took too long. So as I walk outside the gate, I see a white lady in a, like a PT crew. I'm like, what the hell she doing in the Inglewood on 51st Street in the wee hours of the morning? So I do a laugh. I see a, some more white people in a van. I say, oh, yeah, this don't look right. So I turn around and I'm going to walk back in my building. And I'm going to walk back in my building. My peoples pull up. I say, damn. I was finna call him and tell him forget the whole thing. We going up 53rd down Calumet. I said, man, see something funny about this. I said, watch these cars. And as I'm finna call Yusuf, he like, man, they own us. I say, who own us? So I see some crazy lights. These ain't regular police lights. I say, pull over, it's probably just a traffic stop or they think we just bought some drugs or something. I look up, it's a big old suburban SUV in front of us. As we looking back, he hit on brakes. The guy getting out the car with the gun, he almost fell with it. It's so big. I'm like, dang. So my seatbelt on, he like, you got a gun? I'm like, sir, I do not have a gun. I'm just trying to take my seatbelt off. Like, I'll do it. Don't move. Grab me. Throw me out. He, what's your name? I say, John. He like, John what? He say, Thomas. He like, yeah, that's you. The ETF agents take John in. John, right? We get there, and we end up talking to some nerdy guy with glasses. And this is in big time. What happened today? That nerdy guy is a special agent with the ATF. This is big time. Things that have happened over the last He was, was thinking he's slick. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah. The nerdy guy and another agent are sitting on one side of a table. John is on the other. He acts like he doesn't know why he's been brought in. Yeah, You're not in here because we just picked you up on the street. Don't act stupid. On the table between them are several manila folders filled with pictures. You don't know them? They're still images, apparently pulled from the videos Yusuf has been secretly recording for the ATF. There are pictures of John's cousin Steve, BD, and John. John looks confused. You put it all this together? Think about what you've been doing since January. I ain't been doing nothing. Then he suddenly realizes who set him up. I'm like, Yusuf. Yeah, Yusuf. And I'm like, Dad, Yusuf just called me two days ago, asked me was I okay, was my daughter cool, this and And he knew, he knew how I felt about it anyway because he knew I didn't want to get in no trouble or nothing. And he knew I was weak. So at my weakest stage, he, he won. You know, he won. Honestly, he won because I needed the money, and he got me. He played me like a violin. He got me. John wasn't the only one who got played by Yusef. In total, 14 men were brought in that day. Most, but not all, got involved through John. 77 guns sounds like a lot, even to John Thomas. He says he messed up. He knows he messed up bad. But he still doesn't think he's played any part in Chicago's gun violence epidemic. John says he was never part of any gun sales before he met Yusef. Government prosecutors haven't disagreed. John's defense attorney argues that if government informants hadn't pursued him, John might never have brokered a single firearm. 
all of which raises a difficult question. Do cases like John's, government stings that essentially target low-level hustlers, do they actually break up gun networks or create them? On Friday, August 11, 2017, John Thomas enters the courtroom at the Dirksen Federal Building in downtown Chicago. He's dressed in a muted tan suit. His family is lined up on benches. His pastor sits with them. After nearly three years, John is here to be sentenced. He could get as much as 25 years in prison. John holds his daughter, Jataviana. He swings her gently back and forth. She has pink beads in her hair and Minnie Mouse shoes. John explained to her what's going to happen. He says he didn't want her to feel abandoned by her father, like he always did. I told her, didn't I? Mm-hmm. What did daddy tell you? <laughs> well, I tell you I had to go. Yeah. So she understands. Jataviana will live with relatives while he's away. Judge Andrea Wood hears statements from both sides. She tells John she's noted his parenting. She knows he's held two jobs and been promoted during the years he's been out on bail. But she also talks to him about the number of transactions he was involved in, almost two dozen, with a total of 77 guns. He could have said no at any time, but he didn't. The judge sentences him to seven years. On October 9th, John Thomas reported to a medium-security federal prison in central Illinois. WBEZ Chicago's Joe Dassault produced this story. Criminal justice reporting and investigative journalism at WBEZ is supported by Doris and Howard Conant, the Joyce Foundation, and the Robert R. McCormick Foundation.